Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. My name is Lori. Big thanks today to Linda, who signed up as a Patreon supporter, and also to Dina, who made a one-time donation. Amazing people like Linda and Dina help to keep the show running. If you would like to be like them, head to the website herhalfofhistory.com where you'll find the links. Yet another way to be a supporter is to sign up for Into History, and if there's a history lover in your life that you still need a last-minute holiday gift for, can I suggest an Into History membership? Membership comes ad-free episodes of lots of podcasts, plus other bonuses. There's a gifting option available, and experiences really do make the best presents. They take up no room in your luggage, and they last well beyond Christmas Day. The current series is The History of Girlhood, and this is episode 11.11, Girls at Work in the Industrial Age. Take a quick glance down at whatever you're wearing at the moment. I don't know whether you are in pajamas or an evening gown, but whatever it is, it's cheap. Dirt cheap, by historical standards. In the pre-industrial world, cloth of any kind was valuable and priced accordingly because it takes an unbelievable number of hours to get from a cotton plant or a silkworm or a sheep to anything wearable, even if you've got low standards. The Industrial Revolution brought us cheap cloth, and it is difficult to overstate the impact. The British Empire was built on cheap cloth. The economy of the world was completely rewritten in favor of those who had the textile mills. On a more podcast-specific note, the Industrial Revolution changed the lives of women in particular. For millennia, the primary responsibility of the female half of humanity was to spin, and then later to weave and sew, but really to spin. It crosses cultures and ages and class distinctions. Practically the only thing that everyone has always agreed girls should be taught is how to work with thread. If you are a female and you do not know how to spin thread, you are, historically speaking, hopelessly uneducated. I place myself firmly in that category. As I mentioned last week, the early factory jobs were viewed as great all the way around. The kids would learn the value of hard work, the parents would get a steady paycheck, and society would gain the stability of not having a lot of useless parasites draining the resources. Everybody wins. It was only natural to say that girls who used to be at home spinning thread could now work in the textile factories. Boys, too, the factories weren't discriminatory, but a lot of girls were hired. In the early days, mill owners could claim that factory work was easy. And in some senses, that was true. It was so easy that a small child could do it. The most common job for a girl in a cotton mill was that of spinner. A spinner's job was to walk up and down the rows of machinery, brushing lint off the machines and looking for breaks in the thread. If she saw a break, she was to tie up the ends. That's it. That's the whole job. Compared to life on a farm, with its back-breaking labor, a spinner's job looked restful. Especially if you hadn't actually tried it yourself. George Washington certainly had no complaints when he visited one on Wednesday, October 28, 1789. He wrote in his diary, They have 28 looms at work, and 14 girls spinning with both hands, the flax being fastened to their waist. Children, girls, turn the wheels for them, and with this assistance, each spinner can turn out 14 pounds of thread per day when they stick to it. But as they are paid by the piece, or work they do, there is no other restraint upon them but to come at 8 o'clock in the morning and return at 6 in the evening. They are the daughters of decayed families and are girls of character. None others are admitted. 
This is a work of public utility and private advantage. That particular mill was operated by horsepower, because no one outside the British Isles yet knew any other way to do it. The British were keen to keep the knowledge of their technological breakthroughs right there at home. If you understood the inner workings of the machines, you could not leave the country. Of course, it didn't work. One child apprentice named Samuel Slater was later to be called Slater the Trader, because he slipped away to America, where the knowledge in his head was a hot commodity. In 1790, his first mill opened, and his first employees were local children between the ages of 7 and 12 years old. France, Germany, Belgium, and many other countries were not far behind. Only it turned out that millwork was not as easy as everyone had claimed. I mean, sure, the actual job could be done by unskilled children, but it came with some hazards that people fresh from the farm had never considered. For starters, the machines were so loud that no talking could be heard. To communicate at all, you had to shout. All day. Opening windows allowed the fresh air with all its varying humidity levels in. Varying humidity led to more breaks in the thread, therefore many owners wanted the windows closed, therefore no air circulation, therefore workers were constantly breathing lint. This had no immediate bad effect, so owners were able to say it wasn't a problem. But spinners developed dry coughs, which gradually grew more severe until they were spitting blood and eventually dying. A cotton mill girl had less than half as much chance to reach adulthood as her counterpart girl outside the mill. Respiratory diseases killed you slowly. The quicker way to die was on the machines themselves. Spinners were often too small to reach the threads that had broken. Therefore, they had to climb up on boxes or on the machinery itself. One slip, and you'd get crushed in the whirling metal. Even if you didn't die, you might well lose a finger or another expendable body part. Then there was the schedule. Agricultural work was hard, but at least a farm had natural rhythms. There were times of day and seasons of the year where the work eased and you could rest a little. Machines didn't care about any of that. They pounded on, 24 hours a day, which meant that many young children were assigned to the night shift. George Washington may have seen girls with an 8-6 to six schedule, but loads of other girls were soon working much longer hours than that. And you can forget about going to school afterwards. When would you have the time or the energy? In 1802, Britain passed its first piece of legislation on child labor. It said no night shifts for anyone under 21, and no shifts longer than 12 hours, and a basic education was required. I think you'll agree that's not excessively progressive, but the law had absolutely no means of enforcement, so effectively it did nothing. In 1819, a second try said no one under the lofty age of nine could be employed at all, but again, no enforcement. Child education and child labor laws went hand in hand because if a child had to be at school, then she couldn't be at work, and vice versa. Other countries were behind Britain in passing legislation, but then again they were behind in building the mills too, and they did get there eventually. The Prussian effort was initially sparked by King Frederick William III, who was alarmed by reports that factory labor led to health problems in boys, which led to soldiers unfit for military service, and obviously we can't have that. Nevertheless, the initial attempts at regulation failed because the chief proponent framed it as a way to, quote, cultivate the moral, intellectual, and physical capacities of the working classes, unquote. That was not a goal the Prussian elites thought worthy of their support. 
the subsequent attempts stressed that education was important to prevent, quote, an overpopulation of crude individuals likely to avenge themselves and turn violent uprisings against those who abused them irresponsibly in their youth, end quote. Now that was a goal that every European elite had understood since the French Revolution. Self-preservation they could get behind. The law passed, and Prussia got a minimum working age of nine years. In France, it was eight. In Belgium, the law didn't even pass. These laws also set rules about working hours and safety inspections, but I'm not sure any actual children noticed the difference. The 19th century pressed on, and non-politicians began expressing their disapproval. In 1838, Charles Dickens wrote Oliver Twist, which drew attention to child labor. He himself had spent two years of his childhood in a workhouse while his family were in debtor's prison. In 1843, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem called The Cry of the Children. Here's just a portion of it. Do ye hear the children weeping, O my brothers, ere the sorrow comes with years? They are leaning their young heads against their mothers, and that cannot stop their tears. For, oh, say the children, we are weary, and we cannot run or leap. If we cared for any meadows, it were merely to drop down in them and sleep. For all day we drag our burden tiring through the cold, dark underground, or all day we drive the wheels of iron in the factories round and round. And all day the iron wheels are droning, and sometimes we could pray, O ye wheels, breaking out in a mad moaning, stop, be silent for today. But all this hand-wringing had very little effect, in part because the loudest cries were not coming from the people with the most right to complain, namely the kids themselves or their parents. In the American South, for example, where my own ancestors worked in the cotton mills, mill workers usually came from Appalachian and Piedmont farms that were by this point so over-farmed and under-fertilized that they really didn't produce much. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, these people flocked to the mill towns, because in a choice between hard labor and starvation, most people choose hard labor. They were not mourning missed educational opportunities because they'd never had those before either. Children expected to work for the family, so mill work was not a surprise. Plus, a lot of the people saying this was all morally wrong were northerners, and there was nothing better calculated to put a southerner into an intractable position of indignant stubbornness than a northerner waxing on with moral superiority. Race got dragged into it too, because of course it did. Southern mill owners did not hire black children, which is a whole issue in and of itself. Black girls were still picking cotton or working as maids. Mill owners could claim they were helping white children, because life in the mill was better than life on the farm, and the mill workers largely agreed. It's always nice to know that no matter how bad things get, you still have someone else to look down on. At the same time, those concerned about both child welfare and white supremacy complained that here we had white children working themselves to an early, uneducated grave, while black children were going to school and doing wholesome farm labor in the fresh air. The black children were going to get ahead. All this leaves me confused about whether life in the mill was better or worse than life on a farm, but I think the answer is, it depends on the farm. Either way, the racism is clear. Actually, the racism is still another layer deep. It's not like northerners didn't have child labor. They did. It's just that northern child labor largely involved immigrant children, many from Eastern Europe. The child labor problem, according to some, was that the South was using native-born Anglo-Saxon children. 
One Southerner went so far as to encourage massive immigration to the South, because putting immigrant children in the mills was perfectly all right, according to him. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. So far, we have talked almost exclusively about mill girls because that was the earliest and most visible form of industrialized labor. But by the early 20th century, the idea had vastly expanded, well beyond cotton mills. Americans who bought industrially made products were able to enjoy them with child labor safely out of sight, out of mind, until a photographer named Lewis Hines took a job with the National Child Labor Committee. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, which is too bad for me, since I'm really far more comfortable with words. But it does mean that you should head over to the website, herhalfofhistory.com, to see Lewis Hines' photographs. Hines's job was to bring a sad reality home to middle-class Americans, and he did. So much so that employers actively hid the children from him. Over a decade, Hines posed as a fire inspector, an insurance salesman, and an industrial photographer here to photograph the machinery. Though if you don't mind, I need to give a sense of scale, so if that worker there could just stand next to the machine, thanks so much. That's very helpful. For example, Heinz took a picture of Addie Card, thin and barefoot, leaning on a machine full of bobbins of thread. Heinz wrote, Addie Card, 12 years, spinner in North Pownell Cotton Mill. Girls in mill say she is 10 years old. She admitted to me she was 12, that she started during school vacation and now would stay. Or there's Gertrude Bellier, sitting at a sewing machine in a room full of girls and sewing machines. Hines wrote, Gertrude Bellier, 15 years old, hemming curtains on machine. Location, Boston, Massachusetts. Or there's the unnamed little girl shucking oysters in a canning factory. So small she has to stand on a plank to reach the table while the rest of her family works around her. Only the baby had time to look at the camera. Hines wrote, Group of oyster shuckers working in a canning factory all but the very smallest babies work. Began work at 3.30 a.m., expected to work until 5 p.m. The little girl in the center, working. Her mother said she is a real help to me. Dunbar, Louisiana. The commercial canneries had to be supplied by agriculture, which wasn't particularly mechanized. 
so a lot of children were out in the fields harvesting at a frantic pace to meet the demand. This was a far cry from the agricultural labor that people glorified, the kind where strapping boys learned hard work and diligence from their father on the family farm. These workers didn't own the farm. There was no such thing as working hard so you could get ahead. There was just working hard to eat from day to day, and girls did it too. Such as Laura Petty, barefoot and filthy, but with a big smile that you can tell is barely holding in a huge personality. Hines wrote, Laura Petty, a six-year-old berry picker on Jenkins Farm, Rock Creek near Baltimore, Maryland. Picked two boxes yesterday, two cents a box. Or Jenny Camillo, who carries an awkward-looking box on her shoulder. Hines wrote, Eight-year-old Jenny Camillo lives in West Manning, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia. For this summer, she has picked cranberries. This is the fourth week of school in Philadelphia, and these people will stay here two weeks more. Her look of distress was caused by her father's impatience over her stopping in her tramp to the bushelman at our photographer's request. Also, Maud and Grace Daly. Still filthy, and they look tired. Hines wrote, Maud Daly, five years old. Grace Daly, three years old. Each picks about one pot of shrimp a day for the Peerless Oyster Company, the youngest said to be the fastest worker. Location, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. It had thus far proved next to impossible to regulate child labor in factories or fields. It was even more impossible within private homes. Some employers found it simplest not to have any facilities at all, but simply to send the work home, sweatshop style, where whole families contributed long hours at a pittance. Hines took pictures of them, too, saying on one family who assembled artificial flowers, 8 p.m. and not yet finished. The little one on left is not yet four years old. She works on flowers all day and sometimes until 8 or 9 p.m. at night. In spite of a sore throat, she was working steadily all the time I was there, occasionally dropping a sigh that was very pathetic. Father says she likes to work. Oldest sister, who makes six dozen wreaths a day, said the little one makes one dozen wreaths a day. New York City. In response to the public's rising disapproval, employers insisted their workers were too happy. For example, in 1908, mill owners produced a petition with hundreds of their employees' signatures, stating that they did not want child labor laws. Of course, a large percentage of those signatures were just X's. These people had never had time to get even enough education to sign their own names, so who knows what they were told they were signing, or what the consequences would have been if they hadn't signed, or whether they were offered a better option for their children. If they thought the other option was starvation, yeah, of course they signed. Reformers claimed that having so many children in the labor force was precisely what forced the wages down. Better to have adults, and especially adult men, doing the jobs and pay them a decent wage. But that was all hypothetical. The reality many families actually saw was that father couldn't get a job. Employers preferred kids. They were less likely to organize, more likely to obey, cheaper to pay, and entirely capable of doing an unskilled job. Children's wages were not just additional income for many families. They were critical to survival. Lewis Hines and others like him swayed public opinion enough that some progress was made before World War I, but it all got reversed when nations went to war. Among all its other shortcomings, war is extraordinarily expensive. There was increased demand for goods of all kinds and seriously depleted manpower. But the war brought home another hard reality. In the U.S., 31% of all American men between 21 and 31 were rejected for the military, 
because they were physically unfit. The numbers showed what a childhood of hard labor did to you. A full 20% of the men were illiterate. That was embarrassing for a country that called itself enlightened, and the numbers in other industrialized nations were almost as grim. After the war, the child labor reformers got a little more traction. In the U.S., they wanted a constitutional amendment, but a constitutional amendment is not easy to get. Opponents claimed that it was unnecessary, or that the proposed language was too broad, or that it violated states' rights, or that it was federal overreach, or that it violated parents' rights, or that it was all a communist plot. The parents' rights argument is particularly interesting because it's classic politicking. The proposed amendment used the word labor, which had always meant work for hire, but opponents said it meant you wouldn't even be able to ask your teenage daughter to sweep the kitchen floor for crying out loud, and that is overreach. In other words, the opponents pushed the argument to a ludicrous extreme, so it was easy to knock down. It's a strategy that politicians and pundits are still using today. Besides, conservatives had, by this point, accumulated a stream of grievances and legislative losses, most notably women's suffrage and prohibition. One legislator declared, They have taken our women away from us by constitutional amendment. They have taken our liquor away from us, and now they want to take our children. Making yourself out to be the victim is another classic strategy. But such whining worked. The constitutional amendment never did pass, still hasn't. But in 1938, President Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act. It did not actually ban child labor, but it did ban interstate commerce of any goods made by children under 16, which was almost the same thing. It also established a minimum wage, which made child labor less appealing to employers. The UK had already passed their own version, banning work for those under 14. The reformers, no doubt, celebrated. But they actually don't deserve all the credit. The Industrial Revolution created these jobs for children, but continued innovation and better machines meant there were fewer and fewer unskilled workers needed. Developed economies needed more and more educated workers, which means both that there were fewer jobs for children and also that you are shooting yourself in the foot if you don't send them to school. Perhaps even more importantly, the Industrial Revolution created wealth. Not evenly or fairly, but there's no doubt that the standard of living rose. One of the hallmarks of wealthy people throughout history is that they use their wealth to lengthen childhood for their own children. By that, anthropologists mean that rich people stretch the amount of time that kids do not have to be productive members of society. They can just be consumers, preparing for productivity. In the modern world, this means that childhood can possibly extend even into your 30s, depending on what degree you are pursuing. Then, when you are older, stronger, supposedly more capable, and carry a vast array of letters after your name, you enter adulthood with a serious advantage. Okay, not all of us take it that far, but most of us are certainly extending that preparatory phase well beyond puberty. Before and during the Industrial Revolution, children worked and no one complained because not working simply wasn't an economic reality. There was no point in even thinking about it. So in many ways, it is only because Western society got significantly richer that anyone could seriously say, Surely we are rich enough to let all children actually be children? It largely wasn't the poor who were saying this, because it still wasn't an economic reality for them. 
It was the wealthy and middle class growing more and more uncomfortable with the large discrepancy between their children's lives and the lives of poor children who raised the issue, which goes a long way toward explaining why child labor is still a significant issue in developing countries. Even though the United Nations passed the Declaration of the Rights of the Child in 1959, the fact is that many girls and boys still don't get education, adequate nutrition, freedom from exploitation, or any of the other things the UN declared as a child's right. The International Labor Organization estimates that 63 million girls were in child labor in 2020, and 29 million of them were in hazardous occupations. The estimates for boys are even higher. What isn't super clear from that report is that while most of these child workers are in Asia or Africa, some of them are much closer to my own home. Even the current child labor laws in developed countries have loopholes, not to mention straight-up non-compliance, especially in agriculture. So many human rights watchers are still asking, surely we are rich enough to let all children actually be children. My major source for today is Walter Tratner's Crusade for the Children. You can see all the others along with pictures and a transcript at herhalfofhistory.com. You can also see links to support the show on Patreon or Into History or Buy Me a Coffee. Next week I'll be off for Christmas, and then there are two, maybe three, remaining episodes in the history of girlhood. Which means it's time for putting together a poll on the topic for the next series. If you're a Patreon subscriber, watch your email. If you're an Into History subscriber, take a look at the Discord. Every voice matters, so don't forget to vote. And if you gift an Into History subscription to anyone, they'll be able to vote too. I'll keep the poll open for a while after Christmas. Also, my interim content between the last two seasons went pretty well, so if you would like to be on her half of history, like Kate Twitchell King did when she talked about Helen Keller, or like Kathleen Langone did on Amalia Kusner, you should get in touch and send me a pitch. My email address is herhalfofhistory at gmail.com. In two weeks' time, I'll be back here, and in the meantime, enjoy the holiday, however you do or don't celebrate it. Thanks! Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? 
or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.